And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch. From growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back, back for another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here to have another conversation I'm hoping helps your business grow. All right, so you're listening to Startup Hustle, which means you're an entrepreneur, you want to be an entrepreneur, maybe you're involved in the startup, something along those lines. And anybody that's involved in that stage or that type of business, the term valuation is always brought into conversations. And basically your valuations is what's the company worth now, later, or perhaps how do you even figure out what evaluation is? Now, today I'm going to talk with my guest about how to increase your company valuation. And there's a lot of ways you can bring it up and there's a lot of ways you can bring it down. Before I introduce who I'm, uh, who I will be in deeply conversing this subject with, a quick reminder that today's episode of Startup Hustle is powered by Fullscale.io. Hiring software developers is difficult and Fullscale can help you build a software team quickly and affordably and has the platform to help you manage that team. Visit Fullscale.io to learn more. If it helps, that's my business and I'm looking forward to helping you solve these problems. Now with me today, I've got Noel Rickliffs and Noel is the founder of Traction Advising. That's an investment banking uh, firm and an advisory out of Seattle, Washington. You can learn more about what they do at tractionadvising.com. There is a link for that in the show notes. Hopefully it's not raining on our valuation up in Seattle. So Lowell, welcome to Startup Hustle. I appreciate being here. I love startups. Look forward to talking about them. Yeah. And you know, there's, there's plenty, plenty of stuff to talk about today. So, but let's start that conversation with a little bit about your backstory. Yeah, I, uh, you know, is a circuitous route like most startups are. Uh, computer science, electrical engineer, uh, long ago, went to work for a Fortune 500 company, Rockwell Automation, as a sales engineer. Kind of worked my way up the, the sales ladder over 15 plus years. Was eventually a, a global vice president and managed a software business for three years. Jumped out into a startup, just I, I missed the startup world and uh, went to work for a million dollar uh, online market research data collection company as a VP sales, scaled that up to 50 million. That company was later sold to WPP. Went to work for another company based in France, a $10 million company as their chief operating officer. We scaled that to 120 million, sold it to private equity, and then co-founded a, a, a fintech company for healthcare and as a CEO and worked on that for six years. And that was sold to a company in Chicago. And then along the way, I became familiar with M&A just in my different roles. I had acquired about a dozen companies. So um, really through no training, but just experience, became familiar with the M&A process. So when it came time to sell a company that I co-founded, I decided to run the process myself. I'd not been particularly impressed with the sales capabilities of the bankers that we'd worked with. So we ran our own process. We were successful, helped out an investor with uh, another project and decide there's an opportunity out there to help small, we're pretty focused, but small technology companies find a buyer, small meaning, you know, five to 
five to 10 million, but anyway, you know, three to 20 million is the sweet spot where we play in. So that's what we do. We started six years ago and it's the most fun I've ever had. Super interesting. That's a lot, man. You've done a lot. And that's probably <laughs> why you're our subject matter expert today on this. Now, you know, the so I think probably one of the, at both as the host of, of this show, which, you know, we're coming up on our 900th episode, which is crazy. And Wow. You know, I've recently had our 3 millionth download and, you know, there's a whole lot. And, it, you know, now I got a two year break from, from in-person events, but I just started going back to some of them, which invariably means I get a lot of, I get a lot of echo in the questions that get asked to me. But I think one of the most popular ones is what's my business worth? And, you know, the, yeah. that's, it's such a loaded question because, there's, I don't know what someone willing to, to pay for it and invest yeah. in it at. And it's kind of like reminds me of when I was a kid and I, you know, I'd have baseball cards and I'd be, Hey dad, this is worth $10. He's like, yeah, you got someone to give you 10 bucks for it. Yeah, and it's true. No, yeah. no, I don't. Then it's not worth $10. So, right. but, but with that, you know, valuations. Uh, so the, the actual textbook definition, a business valuation is the process of determining the economic value of a business, giving owners an objective estimate of the value of their company. Typically, a business valuation happens when an owner is looking to sell all or part of their business or merge with another company. Um, I kind of agree and disagree with parts of that. Um, You know, the thing that's like we said, so like when you like when you think of a company valuation, like what's your definition? Well, I think it's important to understand traditionally companies were valued much like a, as a financial instrument. So not unlike a bond, right? So that's where they would, they would look at EBITDA and, you know, discounted future cash flow, And that's why bankers were involved in the business to really kind of crank down on those. I really look at technology companies, which are in theory, they're infinitely scalable, right? You don't require a lot of assets. Um, you don't have a lot of, you don't have, often you don't have any work in process and a buyer, if you've got a hundred customers, but the buyer has 2,000 customers, they could, and you're doing 5 million revenue, if they roll it out to their clients and get even 10% adoption, they add 200 clients, uh, you're now triple the size. So that's why it's very, very different in software. But so the, the, the short answer is it depends. It depends on a lot, right? So I think the biggest reason software companies are bought on top line multiples of revenue is because that revenue is sticky. It's it's a long-term revenue stream. So the two biggest things that I see that people will pay for that they desire, it's it's retention and it's growth. So the, the higher your growth is and the stickier your revenue stream, the more valuable it is. But other things factor in, um, and you can stop me, but they're, you know, it, so logo churn ties into retention. Um, your net revenue retention is a big one. How much do your customers grow? But are you profitable? If you're burning a lot of cash, can be hard to sell. If you're break even, it helps a lot. If you make a little bit of money, that's great. Is 80% of your revenue with one customer? Like what's your, uh, what, what is your customer concentration look like? How big is your market, right? If you've got 10 million revenue and it's a $15 million market, it it's going to limit, you know, how much people will pay for it. And then part of it really comes down to who's the buyer. You know, we, we will often do a search for a hundred to 200 buyers and that, 199th buyer that we reached out to has 50,000 clients, whereas I'm all oversimplified. Everyone else had maybe a thousand. They can genuinely value your business at 25 to 50% more than anyone else can because it's worth more to them. So it really depends. I have some short answers. I can give a, a, like a range where they typically fall in, but it's more complicated than what's my business worth. 
Yeah. And that's, that was my point. It's like, that's like a loaded question. You can't really answer it. So, you know, now I'll unpack, I'll unpack some of that a little bit. So when we're going to go with the most simplistic formula possible, it's, it's a, a times X equals B. And, you know, so a meaning that for many software as a service companies is often that rev annual recurring revenue, total revenue, monthly recurring revenue, uh, times whatever number. Now that number is that multiple that so many people talk about that can kind of ebb and flow. And there's, you know, there's so many factors that, I mean, everything from, and you, and you nailed it. And that's why I said, I wanted to unpack it a little bit because that was a, that was a, a whole lot of stuff and like, but. But with that, you're looking at like, okay, so you're, you're, it's going to depend on your buyer. It's going to depend on your industry. It's going to depend on a lot of things. So when we go back to A times X equals B. So in some cases, like if you own just a pure service company, your revenue isn't going to probably be the multiple that's going to end up equaling B. It's going to be something like EBITDA. Yep. So that's earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization. I almost forgot the A there, but so, <laughs> so, and you know, that's, that's, so, you know, different businesses are looked at for different things. Now, you know, here on Startup Hustle, we talk so much about technology and what Lowell's talking about with infinite scalability is, so I always actually use one of the companies I founded. So like gigabook.com as a scheduling platform, which if we have to go out and acquire users can cost X amount for us to, and then they stay for another amount of time and that becomes their lifetime value. Then you look at a company like Paychecks, for example, who already deals with businesses and has 700,000 small business clients. They might want to come acquire a company like Gigabook because they could get it at an affordable rate and immediately plug that into their 700,000 clients that they already collect money from, that they already have relationships to. Exactly. And, the, and the cost of acquisition for a new client can be remarkably less. So, and then one other thing I want to key on too, is you use the term sticky. So sticky means how, when you, you talk about the stickiness of a product, a platform or anything is, so let's go back to that service Example, if you own a cleaning company and you're not happy with your cleaning company, you can probably get a new one to come in tomorrow. And so there's not a lot of stickiness there potentially. Now, maybe they're really good. Maybe they're really affordable. So the clients stay longer. So either you're easily replaceable or your clients stay with you for a long time. Now at fullscale.io, I've got a really sticky product because we sell development services and build teams and no one wants to swap their teams out once they get moving. So very sticky there. And then a lot of enterprise software, uh, you know, you look at like a point of sale system or something like a retail chain will deal with a, a crap POS system as opposed to bringing in something new because the, uh, the cost focus and, and everything of bringing in company-wide enterprise systems is sometimes really like, you're like, Hey, we got other, other problems to solve. Yeah, so right. yeah, a lot of that. So yeah. <clears throat> Very true. Yeah. It, um, I mean, I look at, you, you, you look at the, uh, you, you look at SaaS companies, privately traded SaaS companies, you know, in the, um, multiples on revenue <clears throat> can be, you know, three to 10 times revenue, call it that range. Whereas traditional software companies like on-premise or, you know, shrink wrap software typically would trade in the, you know, two, two and a half times revenue. So, you know, why the difference? Well, because it's a sustainable revenue stream. New licenses, you have to sell new licenses every year or your revenue drops to near zero. If you're 
if your churn is 50%, which is high, on average, your clients only stay for two years. So you look more like a traditional software company. They're not really buying a perpetual license. They're buying, on average, a two-year license. And your valuation is going to look much more like a traditional software company valuation. Okay, so now now that we've we've kind of set the table for this, like, what are the what are some of the things that a company needs to do to succeed and increase its value? Like, where are some of and once again a loaded question because yeah. the question is what do you do? Yeah. But let's just stick with like a, let's just let's start with like a SaaS company. Yeah. So like, what are the what are the yeah. what are the the key performance indicators and objectives and key results that we yeah. want to see and accomplish as a SaaS company to increase that valuation? Well, it's easy to say it's hard to do, but but I mean, size matters, right? If you're less than a million in revenue, it's it's difficult. It's very possible, but it's difficult to to get acquired. You'll have fewer options. Uh, once you kind of cross five million, it's a little bit gray. The three, four, five, six million range, you'll become more and more attractive to more and more buyers. And then ten million is really a threshold because private equity. You know, there's five trillion in private equity out there. Represents twenty uh, percent of the value of the stock market. Although well, the stock market's worth quite a bit less than it was last week. But uh, <laughs> uh, so, and they they'll buy platforms, and platforms are they'll they'll have a strategy or a thesis. They'll buy a platform, then they'll which looks like a real company. It is a real company, but then they'll actively be looking for you know two, three, four, five companies to bolt onto that. You know, to build a platform, right, and operate it, integrate it for five years, and and sell it and, and make a fair amount of money. So once you exceed 10 million in revenue, you are now a viable platform for a company with a strategy or thesis. So, so not only is the, the one of the digits in your equation, does it just get larger, but the multiples, you know, the multiple may go from a, a, you know, a three to a five to a seven, simply by going from two to five to 10 million. Now, again, I, I, know, I know how hard it is to get to, to 10 million. It's, it's easier said than done. But well, that makes a pretty big difference. Well, yeah, but let's talk for a second about why why the acquisition of a company with less than a million in revenue is harder. Part of it is they're skeptical that you've really hit product market fit. And I don't want to minimize how hard it is. I've built companies to get to a million revenue. I know how hard it is. It's really, really hard. But as a buyer, it it you, you're still questioning, do you just have a niche? Do you have a handful of clients? You know, is it, does it really make money at scale? It's hard to tell how profitable a company is really going to be. Um, so that's the biggest thing. The other thing is revenue matters. Uh, every company, most companies in the world are struggling to grow as fast as their investors would like them to grow. So they, they acquire companies to augment their organic growth. If you are a meaningful percentage of their growth, if you're a $100 million company and you buy a company worth $5 million, that's 5% of their revenue, it gives them a 5% bump. It's meaningful. At a million, it's just hard to move the needle very much. And then the third thing is, is just cost. It, it, on the low end, it's going to cost an acquire, you know, two, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars at the high end, 800000 to a million. In cost, just to acquire the company, why would you spend a million dollars just to acquire a million dollars in revenue? A million dollar company, right. Yeah. And you know, another thing too is, you know, so, I mean, that, that cost being the, the, the key ingredient there is a lot of big companies like publicly traded stuff. Like, I mean, they have a hard time even just justifying or admitting that they're like, hey, why are you, why are you focused on these puny little things over here? So yeah. there has to be a, a level of utility there. Okay, so <laughs> now, and, and that was a great answer. So when we talk about evaluation, we're, we're referring to multiples for a, more of an acquisition. 
but so while you might not be attractive for an acquisition at less than a million in revenue, you might be very attractive for investment. Absolutely. Yeah. If you've got the right metrics, it's, I would agree, you know, different investors have different criteria. I would argue most seasoned investors look at traction and accelerating traction and then stickiness as, as the biggest predictor of success going forward. Yeah. So when it comes to, I mean, do you think the same sweet spots exist when it comes to investment as it is for acquisition? Like, are you as, as attractive for investment at the points and, and, you know, the, the, the uh, revenue that we mentioned are you as attractive for investment as you are for acquisition? Meaning like, should you maybe go into those conversations expecting one or the other? It's a good question. I would argue, and and we, we do purely sell side M and a, so we don't do any fundraising. I did fundraising as a, as a CEO. So I'm, I'm familiar with it, but most of the companies that we work with are interested in, in a controlling stake. So they may want you to roll over 30%, but they want 51% or more of the, of the total stock. Now, having said that, there, and, and some of those companies also will do growth investments along the way, but there's a larger group of companies that are, are purely looking to invest. They're not looking to control that we actually don't interact with. But it's a fair, it's a fair thing to know. Like when you go out to raise money, you say, well, we want to raise, but we're open to being acquired. But they, I would, I would, I think they're different processes. There are different people that want to invest, generally speaking. There's a small group, you know, the concentric circles where there's overlap, but they're, they're two different processes. Yeah, the advice I always give is you need to know what you want and what you're yeah. offering when you walk into that meeting. Yeah. And you don't, well, I'm open to six different things, Lowell. And yeah. that tells me you don't really know what you want or what you need, or, you know, it's like, what direction is this going in? All right, so- well, I should add one comment on there. That's a really good point because the reason that that matters is the investors are looking at where they're going to spend their time. And if they don't think, if they think you may go off in four other directions, even if they like your company, they know they're going to have to compete with others. They don't want to waste their time on something that's not likely to come through, even if they like it. So uh, it's important to, to have a clear story with the people you're talking to. Yeah. And why the idea of like a quick flip sounds good in some places, like a lot of funds just don't want to touch you unless you have a, you need to be a good fit. You know, this is these things, it's kind of like dating, you know, like you need to, you you want to find the right fit that makes the, that's, that's good for you. And honestly, uh, so, you know, the, uh, the advice I give to people, I'm not a relationships expert when it comes to like marriage, but I say the key is you got to find someone that's going to put up with your shit, Yeah, um, which is, I think the key. Um, and the, I think that's kind of the same thing with investors. So I want to, uh, you know, talk about some, some of the top five things you need to do to increase your company value. Before you do that, you need, finding an expert software developer doesn't have to be difficult, especially when you visit fullscale.io where you can build a software team quickly and affordably. You can use the Fullscale platform to define your technical needs and then see what developers, testers, and leaders are ready to join your team. Visit fullscale.io to learn more. So 
when we like, what are you, what are, okay. So we're talking about how to increase your company value, obviously. Okay. Revenue cannot be on this list. We're just going to make that an assumption. You want to increase your, your value, increase your revenue. What are the, like, I feel like that's yeah. a given. That's like, everyone's, like, everyone's like, trying to do that all day. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That's yeah, already their yeah. full-time so, day job. Yeah. So what are five other things yeah. that you can do to increase your valuation? I think what I often see with early stage companies is they spend all of their time on acquiring new clients. And one of the things they don't spend as much time on is the client services side. Like how do we, how do we keep people, right? It's like the leaky boat. You work hard to bring them in, uh, take time out or put someone in charge that the first thing they think about when they wake up every day is how do we keep people from staying so that they're, they're motivated, incented, rewarded to figure out, uh, why people leave or the ones that stay, why they stay, but, but you want people to stick around. So that's a big deal to kind They're of have both a employees and clients. That's true. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Cause when a company scales, I mean, what you're scaling is um, onboarding clients and then onboarding uh, employees. And those are both uh, scalable, but if you don't do it right, the wheels will fall off both sides of it. So that's probably a, a different podcast, but the other part related to, to that, I've, I talk a lot about churn. So that should reduce your churn. Which if you've, if you've got, call it 20% growth, but you're losing 10% a year, you're a 10% growth company. If you can reduce that 10%, ideally to zero and maintain your 20%, all of a sudden you've doubled your growth number with the sales, with the same front end on the, on the sales side. The other thing is look at how you, the second thing I'd say, talk about how you report your metrics. When you're a, a young business, you'll sign up anyone and everyone because all revenue is good. I get that. But if you look at the publicly traded companies, they're very, very, very good at, at not putting clients that are likely to bounce don't hit their numbers, right? So they're in a trial or they're in something, they're not considered long-term contracted customers. So whether it's two weeks, three months, it's a different category of client that, that, that is likely to bounce or, or you make it tougher to become a client, which, you know, when you're early company, like, why would you turn down any, any revenue? But customers that aren't likely to stick around, if you can profile or qualify them, it's hard to say no to them. But if, if they're probably going to disappear anyway, that hurts your numbers. And if you're at a, it depends on whether you're SMB, mid-market or, or enterprise, but if your churn numbers are high, you know, if you've got a 60, 70, 80% retention rate, so you lose a third of your clients every year. That's a problem. There are a lot of buyers that are skeptical. Um, if you've got 90, 95, 96% retention annually, that's, that's really impressive. So it's important to at least take some time to figure out how to improve those metrics. And a lot of that stems back into, into product, just making the product better. Some of it has to do with how you actually count the metrics. Okay, so we had a few things. Now, a couple of those are closely related, and I want to get to five, Lowell. I'm going to make sure yeah. we get there. Because right. we want our metrics to add up. I don't yep. want someone to try to acquire this episode, and we're like, man, we said we were going to deliver five, but we only yep. delivered three. So okay. we talked about client retention, which is the same as churn reduction, yep. you know, or you know, improvements in churn rate. I, I, I put employee retention on there, because here's the thing is like, if you have a mass exodus out of your company regularly, that's a signal flare that there's a different problem. Um, and sometimes culture and leadership problems, because if, while we talk about the infinite scalability of software 
there's still always a people component to businesses and attracting talent's a big thing. Now, um, you know, then I I couldn't agree more with the understanding of who your ideal or your target client and customer is. Now, as you mentioned in early stages, uh, you kind I mean, I don't disagree with kind of taking in a wide variety of, of clients and options because you need to figure out who that is. And while you might have a good idea of, of what you're aiming for and, and who you're trying to reach, you also might find some surprises in there. And, um, but I think the key is, is, and I went through this at full scale. So we were, you know, we very quickly identified what kind of companies were the best fit for us and they are sticky, sticky, sticky. And we helped them do a lot of great things. We also quickly identified what clients are not. Now, the reason this is important is the majority of the work is in the, is prior to signing them up and then getting them onboarded. And if they're going to be gone in the end of the second month, uh, it just creates a lot of organizational drag. So, um, you know, I think another thing that we, we need to add onto this list is burn rate or profitability meaning like, where are you at? So if yep. you're talking about like, yep. if, if you're trying to get acquired and, and on top of the acquisition, the acquiring party is going to have to pony up even more money just to keep the thing afloat. Uh, that's a different conversation. Um, now, you know, one of the things I think is, is a hot topic. So this, this is coming out in late June, but we're actually recording this in early May. And Lowell mentioned earlier, like we're in the middle of like a crypto meltdown, a stock market correction. Um, the, the news out there is that venture capital injection is at the lowest level it's been at in a year. And, uh, you know, I've been predicting this for a while because I've felt for the last few years that there was going to be a return to okay, it wasn't as, I don't understand why profitability hasn't been the most glamorous thing in a lot of companies. And you look at like Uber, who's a multi-billion dollar company and still loses billions of dollars every quarter. Like, yeah. when are you going to make some money, Uber? Right. Like, when right. are you going to make a profit? Because eventually that it's, you've got to, because yeah. there's no way around it. So, so burn rate and profitability, but I, it was actually the Uber, the new CEO, the newer CEO that was talking about, Hey, we're changing our model. We're going to try to tur- turn back around and, and look at FCF free cash flow. And I think that that's a, uh, you know, companies that have profitability, free cash flow or available resources. So the companies that raised money over the second half of the pandemic and got a big valuation, they, they're going to have a love hate with that because they also got to live up to that valuation yeah. in subsequent rounds, which means there you're going to see a lot of companies are going to have down rounds, meaning they're yep. going to be they're going to be taking an investment at a lower valuation because yeah. the multiples aren't there. But I think that like overall, like when it comes to like free cash flow, so free cash flow is defined as the, it's it's kind of like a measure of EBITDA in some ways. It's the amount of free cash that you have available to pay back debt or stockpile cash or do whatever. And I think that that level of flexibility, I mean, obviously what well, they like to say, it's hard to go broke taking profits. Yeah. So there's something to be said there. And I think that, I mean, how, how do you feel about that part? I couldn't agree more. I, I think the Ubers, some of those are dangerous anecdotal um, models out there that people look at, or there's a lot of anecdotal stuff that people will reach, talk or read about that, that hit the high lines. And, but it's just not what we typically see. Um, and so a couple of threads we go down there. One is, you know, the whole VC investment model, right? I've got a fund, I'll make 30 bets. I know that 15 
will return zero and they don't care. You know, the goal is you've got two or three or four that, that, that hit it big, that return hundred to 200 X returns. So they'll pour money into it and they want you to either, they want you to blow up. They want you to blow up the good way or the bad way, right? They just really don't care. They don't care. And, and what's, what I find, what I struggle with, and, and I get it, and, they, and often they do quite well. What I think is hard about that is most of the companies that we work with, they're linear growth companies. They're good businesses. They're not the hockey stick. They don't have the exponential growth. If you have exponential growth, I usually coach people, you should stick with it. But being profitable or at least break even makes it much easier to be acquired. You, you hit it at the lead end. Companies don't want to spend pick your number, 10, 20, $50 million to buy your company, only to have to keep writing checks into it. Owners typically just don't want to do that. So you don't even you don't have to be 50% you know, profitability, but even break even is a big deal. Break even or better is helpful. You know, some people talk to you and say, yeah, we're only, you know, we're only burning uh, you know, 30% per month. And I'm just like, most buyers don't want to take on something like that. So it's it's important. So you know, BC back, I, the bootstrap companies, I, I talk to them on a pretty regular basis where they'll have one or two or three owners. It's a, it's a four, five, six, seven million dollar business, but it's 20% profit. You can do the math, right? If it's two owners, 1.4, you know, seven million dollar business, 1.4 million profit. All right. They pay themselves a salary and they pay each other a $700,000 bonus at the end of the year. Profit's a great thing. That's a good life. Like for most people, that's a pretty good life. Um, so, it, it, it is important to to look at that. And it's some, I think, and part of it is there's a culture, and I've seen it before, where the culture is I raise money, I spend money, and then I raise more money and I spend money. It's just never anything. And the thought of breaking even is just not even on their radar. Like they just don't even think about it. Like, and they, and they minimize it. And then sometimes there's a forced switch by the board that we've got to reach profitability by the end of Q2. And all of a sudden they have to start looking at things that they've really not looked at before and making difficult decisions. And then once they hit that or a little bit profitable, it's just a very different mindset of, yes, we want to grow and reduce uh, churn and all those kinds of things, but, but we don't want to go out and have to ask for more money. You know, when you, you mentioned at the, uh, at the beginning of the show, you were talking about, you know, I've been on the, uh, and I've gone out and I've, I've, I've raised funds before. My usual response to that is, I'm sorry. The thing I'll throw in there is, is on the acquire side, they love bootstrapped or capital efficient companies. If you haven't raised a lot of money, some people feel like I haven't raised a lot of money, so I don't look that sexy. The reality is you're actually more interesting because if... Uh, yeah. If you're at five million in revenue, but you raise two hundred million, one your cap table looks terrible. But they think you've thrown everything in the book at this thing and it can't grow. If you've raised a million bucks and you're at five million, they think, wow, we could bring in more resources because it hasn't been done yet. Yeah, and I think that's a, I think that's a fundamental shift you're going to see with a lot of VC. And you know, I've I mean, because as interest rates rise and you know all of it, I mean, the the era of free money is over at least yeah. for a while. Yeah, and you know that's that's a real thing. And you know, like I, I don't know, you talk about private equity being you know a fifth of whatever. I mean, that comes in a lot of shapes and forms. Now, do you think that, so this is a, yet another loaded question because, you know, some people prefer the family office and yeah. some people prefer the fund. I'm a, personally, I kind of like family offices because I yeah. think that they're, in, they're individualized. Like they're all, okay, so what's a family office? A family office, well, usually is 
a rich family or a group of them that have put some of their money into a, a, a fund that doesn't have boundaries. It doesn't have, you know, so we've mentioned these things like some companies or some funds don't want to touch you unless you're at this revenue, that growth, your exit strategy within this window and all of that family offices have ultimate flexibility to make a lot of sense. Now, I think if you have a business that does have free cash flow and it's profitable, I find that most people I know that are in and around the family office love those. That yeah. That's more of they a family do. office vibe yeah. where the funds are more along the lines of, hey, we'll put that $10 million in while you only have $2 million in revenue because we think you'll get there faster. Burn it. You know, go, go, go. Where, yeah. you know, family offices might, I don't know, have a different approach. And then for me, I, I mentioned like earlier in the episode, like the best partners uh, in, on the personal side, like my wife puts up with my shit. And that's why we just had our ninth anniversary yesterday and super happy about that. Congrats. Now, my first wife did not put up with my shit. Now, I say your shit. That, we all have it, man. But when you bring in investors or other people into the mix, they're kind of like your husband or your wife. They're going to have something to say. You talk about the controlling factor. But I don't know. I think a lot of family offices, a lot of them, I've talked to them in the past. They're like, well, we don't want to show up and do your job. We want, yeah. we want to yeah. own a piece of this and we want to make money with you. And yeah. it's, I don't know, it feels like a different situation. What's your take on that? I, I couldn't agree more because the reality is, you know, uh, VCs, people think of like the VC as the, as the person that they interact with. But the reality is it's somebody else's money that they're spending and their, yeah. their job is to make money on that money and, 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 and improve their ranking. So there's a lot of pressure on them and they, they are on your board and they're not going away and they can change your life quite a bit. They can make your job. Not, not a whole lot of fun family offices, but they're, they're looking to generate wealth from wealth. And it's not that family offices aren't, but they're already uber wealthy and they're taking a small percentage of their wealth. And typically they do a lot of real estate deals and things that generate cash flow. I mean, they're very, very good at that. You know, they're building generational wealth, but often it's fun for them to get involved in cool stuff and close to the ground and like look you in the eyes at board meetings and, and kind of feel like, like they're kind of go back to their roots early days. So that can be, it can be interesting. It's usually more patient money, right? They're not, they don't have a, yeah. they don't have a, a fund clock that's ticking that they have to show a return for. Uh, if they like the business, they might sell it in two years, three years, 10 years, 20, they may never sell it. They may keep it for a long time. Yep. Well, I think they're more likely to make highly strategic investments too, because a lot of these funds and families have other, they might own whatever it is that made them rich. They might be like, you know, we've been, we've been paying all this money out to all these years for all these different things that all these, you know, I don't know, they're sending money all every which way that you can imagine. And, you know, they look at something like, well, why don't we just buy a business that does this? Yeah. And then we're kind of pumping, we're, we're blowing up our own balloon and the whole process. And I don't know, I, I agree with everything you said. So, all right. So we're, we're on a, for those of you listening, we're on, we're on a, a compressed time frame today, both Lowell and I. So we're, we're going to move forward to our founders freestyle. And before I do that, it, do you need to hire software engineers, testers, or leaders? Cause let full scale help. We have the people and the platform to help you build and manage teams of experts. When you visit fullscale.io, all you need to do is answer a few questions, then let our platform match you up with our fully vetted, highly experienced team of software engineers, testers, and leaders. At Fullscale, we specialize in building long-term teams that work only for you. So go to fullscale.io and learn more. Now, I mentioned the founders freestyle. So Lowell, uh, you know, so many founders uh, in and around the show. And as, as, as advertised before we hit record, it goes by pretty quickly. So I like to 
let everyone everyone rock a quick freestyle and uh, talk about any of the things that you may have forgotten or advice that I don't know. It's freestyle, man. So here you go. Here's the mic. Thanks. Uh, well, I want to appreciate how hard it is, but also how fun it is to, to build your own business. I, I think startups are like like pure oxygen. It's uh, it's just exciting and, and anything can happen. There's a lot of energy. Um, I've been around a bunch of them as, a, as an investor, as, um, as an operator, and now we talk to buyers all the time. One of the things I learned when I was pitching investors and talking about an exit, you'd always find, you know, you'd do a quick Google search, you'd have an idea of a few acquisitions in your marketplace that you'd use as, hey, this could be us in the future, but really didn't really didn't know what buyers were thinking. And now for the past six years, and I talk to buyers every day, the full spectrum from the, um, the, the, the high multiple private equity firms to uh, some of the, the value-oriented funds. You know, you talked about the family offices and search funds are out there. It's another category of buyers I would, I would recommend to people where they'll take a young typically young Stanford MBA grad, and then investors will invest in that person to go buy a company. They'll typically step in and operate it, usually the CEO, not always. And that's a good source. They, they do well, and you can roll some money over. But I encourage people, feel free to reach out. We have conversations. I do this. This is fun. I love this. This is the most fun I've had in uh, my entire career, just learning about people's journey. What I'm happy to share, you know, we've done some things right. I've also made a, a lot of mistakes along the way. And, and I think you can learn more from those than you do from the things that you do right. But happy to share those and um, give, you know, quote unquote, free advice you know, to the extent that it's it's helpful. So I encourage people, feel free to reach out. If you just want to have a conversation, talk about your business, what you're struggling with, what you're working on and say, you know, have the question, what do you think my company is worth? And I'll ask these same questions, but where do you sit here? And we can have, we have a pretty good idea of what that range would be to kind of set expectations for people. Um, and they'll say, well, should I sell it now or should I sell it in a year? And again, it's just like our earlier questions. It's like, well, it depends. It depends on their macro level things that, that might matter. Like your business wasn't sexy last year, this year it is because of COVID or whatever, uh, which is great. The valuations went up, but also means that Microsoft just put a billion dollars into this. Well, can you compete with Microsoft? Can you, you know, can you compete now that, so there might be a roll up that's occurring. You know, the other thing is on the personal side, a lot of times I'll talk to people that are five, seven, eight years, sometimes 10 years in, and it's not the hockey stick unicorn, you know, that they thought it would be. Uh, they may have taken on some investors that they may or may not like. Uh, they may or may want to, not want to continue to do this. So they've got a good business, you know, five, six, seven, 10, 12 billion revenue, but it's not going to be the billion dollar thing. It, it's more operational. It's less exciting and entrepreneurial than it was in the early days. And they want out, right? So that's a, often there's a personal conversation that we'll have as well. Uh, you know, life is short, right? So what do you want to do with the days and the years that you've got to go do something, anything? So um, encourage people, feel free to reach out. You know, at Lowell, L-O-W-E-L-L, at TractionAdvising.com, you know, or by our website, you know, TractionAdvising, one word, dot com. And we've got some some materials on there as well, but we enjoy the conversation. So feel free to reach out. You know, there's, there's no obligation. There's zero pressure, uh, but just to kind of get to know each other and learn about your business, see if we can be helpful. You know, as, as I kind of wrap this up as well, uh, you know, a couple of things for my freestyle here is... You know, when people will say, well, what kind of valuation are you seeking? Who's asking? Right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, because that's for me, like, I, you know, I'm 46 years old, man. And like, 
you know, I, and, and I, I'm not raising capital, but I'm not opposed to it. It depends like who is asking and what does that look like? And I think that these are situational. And I think that, you know, you're going to run into a lot of people, people are going to tell you. So I get some people they are like, I talk to them. They're like, yeah, well, uh, so-and-so who's ready to write a check says I'm worth 3 million, but my buddy, Eric says I shouldn't be settling for less than a 5 million valuation. And my response is always then tell him to write you a check. Yeah. Cause if he's, cause if they're not going to do that, then, you know, you get a lot, the peanut gallery wants to chip in a lot and, and give you a lot of, a lot of things. I think you keyed on a very important thing is like, also, where are you at? Like, you know, if you talk about owning a, a $50 million business and you own it 50, 50 with a partner and someone's like, Hey, here's a check for $25 million. Like, I mean, this, that is generational wealth. Yeah, that is, is like, you can spoil your great, great, great grandchildren if you, if you put that money aside properly. And, you know, so the thing is, it's just different for all of us. And I think really the best, the best, you know, so when to sell, what valuation, all of that is when do you feel good about it? I mean, yeah. if you do, if you feel good about it, then, then you won. I, and, and guess yeah. what? No one's going to know how it turned out until a lot, a, a lot, a, a way down the road anyway. And it is what it is. I mean, yeah. I think if you get a chance to change your life, your family's life, your employee's life, or create or take something that had a foundation made of sand and turn it into concrete, then why not? Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of loaded questions in here. And we might have to do a follow up episode when we have a little more time about some of these things, because a, lo a lot of this stuff is really great advice. So, Lowell, thank you so much for uh for sitting down with me today and once again if you want to learn more about traction advising there is a link in the show notes uh you can find lowell on linkedin uh lowell at tractionadvising.com not everyone offers their email i will deco at fullscale.io i'll see you down the road lowell thanks matt Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time.